0: Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurists, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on everyone? In this podcast, I speak with Chris Duco of the Phoenix Conservancy Project, who's headed up the newly formed Madagascar Project. We speak about Madagascar, a country that's kind of written off as a lost cause uh, for a lot of people. Um, and in particular, they're working to protect something called the Lost Forest of Ivobor, which I'm probably mispronouncing. Um, but it's a really cool forest, it actually wasn't really discovered until 2016. So we talk about that. And Chris also explains why Madagascar is still you know, even though it's one of the most biodiverse areas on the planet, it's home to all of the planet's lemurs uh, and it's still one of the most eco, uh, undervalued ecosystems out there, even to other conservation groups, which is really interesting. A uh, couple things to note, audio quality. Uh, so Chris is recording on location in a South Dakota ho- hotel lobby. So to my understanding, there was like a race car rally going on at that time. Um, and then also in the podcast, he mentions a few spices that by purchasing them could directly help the Madagascar rainforest. So they're vanilla, cinnamon, and a spice called votes pear So it's pronounced it's spelled V-O-A-T-S-I-P-E-R-I-F-E-R-Y. So votes pear pepper. Um, so for both votes pear and cinnamon, you can buy them at spice Trekkers, And for vanilla, he mentioned this place called carry.com. Um, I will put a uh, link in the description of the podcast too. But those will directly help the rainforest and also make your food taste super unique. Um, So one last thing, I was bummed I couldn't tell him this, but as we were talking, I thought of this quote. Um, So in the podcast, Chris mentions that since it would take about 100 years for the rainforest to regenerate, he'll never see the end of this project. Uh, So it made me think of the old Greek proverb, A society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they will never sit in. So that made me think of him and the Madagascar project. Today I speak with the Madagascar project manager of the Phoenix Conservancy, Chris Duke. The Phoenix Conservancy works to restore endangered ecosystems globally for the communities that depend on them. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thanks a lot for uh, joining me.
1: Yeah, no problem. I really appreciate you having me and uh, getting a chance to talk to you today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I understand that this is a, a new project for you guys. So when does it start? What made you want to do it, and how long have you been planning it for? Well, we so this this project is, as
1: you said, relatively new. But then again, so are we. So we founded in um, 2016 and got our 501c3 in 2017. And this project has been in the works since 20 early 2018. So we we had our first conversations that kind of got things moving a uh, little bit more than a year and a half ago at this point so relatively new but
0: gotcha okay so when i first spoke with ben stone um you know talking about the palouse prairie and kind of the more national and local efforts that the phoenix mm-hmm. conservancy has um he kind of mentioned it was a bit more difficult of a project at least this madagascar side it was a <laughs> bit more difficult than others to set up um what was like the hardest thing you had to do with setting up or what made it so difficult?
1: Well, that's, that's really true. Um, when we kind of, when we got started, we had discussed pretty clearly that the problems, kind of the problems we were hoping to address, which is, uh, just degrade, basically just habitat degradation across the board. Um, you had to think about it in three different scales simultaneously. So local, national and global. And so we had local and national kind of set up. And then the global project, um, we were originally looking at a couple of places that from my personal experience, I, I used to live in Venezuela. So we were initially looking at that as a starting point. And then um, the Venezuela situation has, has gotten drastically worse even since I was there, which was um, around 2014, 2015. Yeah. So not, Not, Actually, I now just realized I've got that wrong. 2013, 2014, but it's gotten much worse. So we kind of were looking for for another spot to start. Um, What makes the international thing difficult, Mm -hmm. um, probably the most important thing that we can't do easily that we can do with Palouse Prairie and then relatively easily with our national projects in the Great Plains is it's really hard to get to the site where you're working (laughs) right
0: yeah
1: um madagascar is is just notorious for insanely bad roads Hmm. so even once you get to madagascar which is almost almost exactly the farthest point on earth that you can possibly be from seattle washington and from the northwest without starting to get closer um well even once you get there uh, (laughs) the, the roads are just insane so just getting to the site it makes it hard because it's hard to talk from a, a place of authority about a place that you can't get to very easily or haven't been right. yet. So, when we first get started, it's it's really hard to, to convince people that we know what we're talking about, um, you know, from literature and conversations alone. So that's that was that was probably the hardest part about getting started. Um, I think really thinking that thinking that you can formulate a, a really good project without getting there was also kind of a chicken and egg problem. Um, especially as a young nonprofit, we kind of, one of our most important kind of currencies is trust. And it's hard to get people to trust that we really mean what we say without actually doing it. Right. But it's also really hard to make sure that we know what we're doing without getting there first. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem in terms of like, um, you know, formulating a problem to get there. And then once you do get there. Um, obviously, our, our local national projects, we don't really have a problem with language barrier, but in Madagascar, the primary language that is spoken in a lot of the country that's the official administrative language is French, and then the language that's a common language is spoken all over the island is Malagasy. So uh, not only that, but just the, the actual mechanisms of, of communicating in a language that, that's not your native language is a little tough, let alone two. And then, um, sort of compounding that is that you, you're talking to people about a place that, that almost certainly they've never been. Yep. Um, just because so few people have been there, um, and so you're trying to get them to talk to to understand the value of what you're doing about a place that they don't personally know, um, and then translating that into a, a term that kind of that kind of gives it scale. It's like it's like the difference between um, saying, oh, you know, this this something costs, you know, one million dollars, and people say, okay, whatever, that's fine. It's a million dollars. I hear that all the time. But when you actually so show somebody what one million of anything looks like, it totally like locks it into right, their yeah. mentality. So I'd say that's kind of difficult to do if if people don't have a concept of what uh, kind of the reality of the system is there.
0: Yeah, which makes sense. So so why did you guys? You know, I read you guys were looking for, you know, place in Central and South America, just looking for other locations to do an international project, right? There's Indonesia, mm-hmm. Indonesia, Southeast Asia. Why did you choose, and I guess, why did you prioritize Madagascar with all the difficulties, knowing that it's, you know, tough to get to? It's, it's really tough for people to, um, you know, visualize the actual issues. So why did you go, why did you choose Madagascar before all of them?
1: Well, I mean, some to be perfectly honest, some days it feels like masochism. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we we deliberately sought out the the biggest problems, and right. you know, full full well knowing that we're throwing ourselves into probably the most thorny, or one of cert- I, I mean, it's hard to quantify that one of the most difficult places um, to do effective conservation in the world, and it's it's just a combination of circumstance and other things. Um, it is absolutely, in at least in our opinion, the most urgently pressing um, concern uh, in terms of conservation, from a combination of just the the insane endemism that you see in Madagascar um, to the lineages that are there that have, have been extinct elsewhere on the planet for, for millions and millions and millions of years. Um, to just the the state of utter and almost total degradation of, of that island as a whole, and they're kind of on a knife edge. And so we we deliberately prioritize Madagascar because it is it's really just the center the center of the storm. It's it's about as bad as it gets. Um, that's also true of a couple of other places. But what really kind of tip the scales for Madagascar is is in spite of their um, relatively recent political instability, they are not the most politically unstable place that we were considering. And gotcha. our, t- our other top two frontrunners were Venezuela and the Philippines. Yeah. And while we are still very interested in those places, at the moment, um, Madagascar won, um, not only for, for the biodiversity that's at risk and for the severity of the situation, but also just because it was logistically... Even though getting there and operating there is, is logistically difficult, it's not as uh, politically volatile at this point as the other two options that are that are definitely on our future agenda. But yeah, um, we're getting a good start here. And then sort of a sort of a more sort of a romantic woo woo kind of answer to that is that our symbol is a phoenix, and so that the reason we're called the Phoenix Conservancy, we get we get asked that constantly about. You know what do we do in Arizona? And we say nothing, and people get confused. <laughs> but um, we that symbol was chosen deliberately for the the symbolism of the world's ecosystems rising from the metaphorical ashes mm-hmm. um, and being reborn from this state of destruction they're in currently. And Madagascar's major scourge is fire, and so what better place for a phoenix to to really plant their flag there you go literally burning to the ground so
0: and i bet you wouldn't be there in the first place if you didn't think you could have some major successes and some major wins which is the flip right. side of the coin and, and super promising and also you hear about a lot of environmental and you know rainforest organizations and a lot of them do you know central and south america mm-hmm. uh, indonesia is a big one but i don't often hear about a lot of organizations working in Madagascar, even though it's a, it's, you know, it's one of the most biodiverse places in the earth on the earth. Right. So there's, there's a reason for that.
1: Um, there, there actually are some extremely dedicated people that have been there for Mm. decades and what has made things so difficult, I think. And, and so as getting into this project, it, it would be incredibly arrogant to say that, oh, well, you know, what we really need is, is us and that'll fix it. Yeah. Good um, point. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what we have realized and been extremely grateful for is that we are, we just, it's more about timing. We have been in extremely lucky to be um, the beneficiaries of decades and decades of work of so many organizations. Um, from C. Poly and Center of and Missouri Botanical Garden and Duke Lemur Center and just dozens of others that are focused on working in Madagascar Hmm. that have had a really, really difficult road in terms of learning uh, the realities of what it is like to work there and and learning a lot of the lessons that we're benefiting from. Um, The reason that that it's kind of gone quiet um, of recent is that as of as of their coup um, from 2009, that has spilled over all the way to 2013. Um, Conservation International dialed back their efforts substantially, mm-hmm. at least for a period, while they were prioritizing other places. And to be fair, they were doing something similar to what we were doing, which was right. looking at places that were where you know they could make a greater impact with with less political risk for a short period of time. Um, so it's left a bit of a vacuum there in their absence. But I think people are, are getting a lot more interested now in now and getting back into it. Um, Interesting. And, but like I said, we, 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 there not a day goes by where we don't sit down and think, you know, all the lucky stars we have that, that we're getting to benefit from the dedication of so many people yeah. to have gone through, okay, this works, this doesn't. This worked in Asia, this doesn't work here. This worked in Africa. This doesn't work here. Here's what's better. Um, just because Madagascar is such a such a unique system um, in so many ways that it really kind of takes a very very tailored approach to be successful. And and we've um, we've been very lucky to have all that experience behind us, even though we haven't personally had to struggle through what you know so many of our colleagues have have struggled through and put us in a position to do.
0: Yeah, which is a good point. Like we're all you know working with each other and helping each other out especially in Mm -hmm. you know conservation issues and efforts Um, yeah absolutely so what initiatives do you have planned what are you um you know what what are the long-term projects and short-term projects for um madagascar project
1: sure uh we the most pressing issue that that it seems to be almost constant um there there to my knowledge there's not a lot of places that don't have this concern which is fire so Hmm. in madagascar in the short term almost every conservation project that that i've run into so far and and um like i said we we keep reaching out and, and meeting new people doing awesome stuff um the first and foremost thing that needs to happen is if you're working with forests or you're planning to plant forests or restore almost anything, you need to make sure that you're protected from fire. So yeah. in the very short term, um, fire protecting our forests and our site. Um, we work in a forest called Ivuibor, which is in southeastern, uh, Madagascar. It's a very isolated piece of forest and it's, it's being constantly pressed at by fire essentially every single year there's there's fires that burn right up to the edge of the forest so step is to keep the forest or from just going up in flames on its own um but also to provide a, a barrier and sort of a sort of an area for us to start doing restoration and for the forest to start regenerating itself naturally you know it's it's pretty hard for it to grow or expand when every seedling it puts out you know a few feet from the forest gets burned every year so right
0: yeah
1: um Fire's the big one in the short term. And then following that, one of the major lessons that's been learned in a number of different places um, is that you can't go from what it is now directly back into rainforest. And the reason being is that, that, and this is actually part of the reason that that, um, I'm sure in talking to other people that have done rainforest work, you've you've heard the, the basic sentiment that You know, once rainforest is gone, it's gone forever. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a conclusion that was made in a sort of a sort of an oversimplification in a lot of ways of saying that when you lose rainforest, you lose a microclimate that's associated with the rainforest. So you lose the cool temperatures, the high humidity and a lot of the moisture that the rainforest kind of holds Mm -hmm. into the system. That all goes as soon as you cut the forest down which means that it gets taken over by a different steady state. So without bridging the gap between rainforest and what exists now, which is largely sun-baked, very dry, um, extremely, extremely sun-exposed, um, degraded grassland, there's really no bridge to get the back to forest. Yeah. So our next major priority there is to establish a... Um, Especially especially kind of tailored for Madagascar fire breaks and fire barriers that consist of a double, double scrape down to soil with a large median of uh, backburned grass to create just basically a huge gap of about 20 to 30 to 40 meters wide um, that really, really strong winds can't blow sparks over.
0: Huh, like a firewall,
1: kind of. Exactly. Oh, wow. So, around a traditional fire break would just be something that. The recommendation is about twice, uh, your fire break should be about twice as wide as the dominant fuel. And the dominant fuel in that area is grass that's, you know, less than a meter tall. But the thing is, is that in a lot of areas of Madagascar, the wind just gets screaming. So you you can do that all you want, and the fire will just jump your line. So um, what we've learned from our colleague uh, Chris Berkenshaw at Missouri Botanical Gardens is he's found a really effective means for controlling fire, um, which is like I said, two, two parallel breaks with a large median of backburned fuel-free uh, areas that get burnt out at the beginning of the dry season, um, right about the least, kind of the least vulnerable time where a fire can't get away and under extreme supervision, but eliminating a fuel load for something 50 meters wide. And then on the other end of that, uh, piling up all the grass and, and vegetable matter and charcoal that you remove and then creating a very good spot to establish these pioneer species. So trees and shrubs that are very good at colonizing. <laughs> sorry, I'm being invaded over here. Uh, That's all right. <laughs> uh, that are very, very good at colonizing uh, grasslands. And then they are trees and shrubs that can create kind of the, enough of a toehold and enough of a microclimate for rainforest species to get started.
0: Wow. Okay. So let me see if I can work that back of like... Sure. So, Sorry. Yeah, that was a lot to throw at you there. Yeah, no worries. Just unpacking. It's like, so you have this, obviously you have this this uh, area you're trying to protect, but around that there's a fire break. But then there's also the potential, like you mentioned, a toehold for that to recover and for these new areas to in turn become more, I mean, you know, you're probably not going to get a rainforest anytime soon. Like Mm -hmm. what was just lost, but something similar could arise from that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So these, these, the rainforest species that we have there, a lot of them are very slow growing. So as you said, it's, it's, it's a, it's kind of a weird feeling to be starting a project that I know I will never see the end of. So like, it will not be, you know, even possible to classify it as, as fully recovered forest for a hundred plus years. Um, but a lot of uh, studies and surveys have shown that that doesn't actually matter. It's what really kind of matters is regenerating forest and secondary forest is, you know, of a lot more value, especially to the, to the lemurs that live in our forests. It's a lot more valuable than just degraded grassland in every direction. And the the real, what's really important is kind of setting it on the right path and making sure that it has the right conditions, so that um, you know you're not you're not wasting time and money planting seedlings where they're going to die. And some of the really hard lessons that have been learned by conservationists in Madagascar are, are trying trying to move <coughs> rainforest species out into this grassland, and then having them just get throttled by the grass, and then not having the right conditions, the right humidity, the right temperature, the right water, and you know that's that's really what's held a lot a lot of efforts back, but um, like I said, being lucky enough to, to have those lessons already learned for us, um, the strategy is basically to, to stop the fires, to keep from burning natural recruitment, plant pioneer species that can restart the forest cycle, create shade, create water, start creating leaf litter to create a nutrient base for these little trees from the rainforest to grow in, um, but then also trying to create habitat that is attractive enough to draw some of the lemurs that live in our forest out and start dispersing some seeds and doing some natural regeneration too.
0: And you were, we were talking a little bit, um, we were talking a little bit earlier, but you guys are working in a particular forest that mm-hmm. is unique and a little bit, I don't want to say resilient to fire, but um, you yep. know, it is, it's in a unique area. It's, it's surrounded by, you know, a couple of mountains. Um, do you want to talk about that the lost forest of I'm going to try bore. Yep, that's yeah, that's it. Boom. I mean the likelihood
1: is that I'm not saying it exactly right either, so that's that <laughs> well, I'm definitely <laughs> not saying it <that> right. <laughs> um, so yeah, so our forest is um we've it's been known by a lot of different names. So what we've settled on and the local name is is Iwibor, which is Iwibor. Uh, roughly translates to in that the, the Bara dialect of Malagas as the place for the birds, or a place for the birds. Um, so we've settled on the, the the full title of the Lost Forest of Ibiboro, which which uh, one of the other monikers it's had is the Crystal Forest. So as you were saying, there's it's it's a very lucky forest um, in a lot of ways because the the region that it happens to exist in is the the Ius uh, region in very very south uh, eastern Madagascar. So right on the border between. Kind of the wetter, the wetter areas to the north, and then the the famous spiny forest where you have those crazy octopus trees with all the thorns and yep, yep. all these really really angry looking trees that, that are in arid and semi-arid forests to the south. So it's kind of right in the borderlands. Um, but Eivivijbor is is essentially a sunken protected valley inside a mountain ridge, and the mountains are this are this glittering white quartzite. So little quartz crystals that have been jammed together to kind of make a mountain. And the reason it's still there at all is because on a few fronts, it the these giant, these giant peaks are, are obviously inflammable. So they block these massive fires from getting into the forest. Um, it's not fully protected. So that's, like I said, we're, we're lucky in terms of we don't have to actually encircle the whole forest with these fire breaks. We just have to close it off basically connecting the dots between these giant mountains. Um, and so being the only forest, the only forest for, for miles in any direction, uh, the largest forest, excluding some of the small fragments to the north that have escaped being burned for various reasons, just being in hollows and and gulches and stuff like that. Um, the largest major forest that's close to it is Peak Digui Bay special reserve, which is about 20 kilometers to the east. So it's, it's almost entirely isolated from any forest in any direction. And what that's resulted in is it's kind of a refuge for stuff that very likely had a larger um, distribution in the past, at least before humans got there. And what makes it really unique is that uh, people didn't really know it was there um, and hadn't really formally explored it until 2016.
0: Yeah, that's so,
1: wild. Yeah, it's it's a little nuts, and that's 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 why it's we've referred to it as lost forest. Is it's just a forest that's kind of been forgotten. But Val um, Valbio and um, a number of scientists from Missouri Botanical Garden and other other sources came in and took a look at it, and what they found there, among a lot of other things, uh, were at least two species of lemur wow. that haven't been described. So species of lemur that nobody knew existed at all, um, are sheltering in this forest along with ring-tailed lemurs, which, you know, everybody kind of knows it's King Julian from the movies. And if you, you think of lemur, you think of ring-tails and they're there too. Um, and also endangered rather severely, but, uh, the two lemurs that we're, we're really focused on are the ones that don't exist anywhere else. And this forest is not big. It's about 3000 acres. So, Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of a seventh of the size of Manhattan Island. So not a very big forest.
0: Wow. And yeah, um, yeah, I mean, that's the big thing too about Madagascar is that is, it's so biodiverse. There's a lot of species there that are endemic to there. Um, Mm -hmm. So like, I'm sure that had something to do with your, a, your decision to go there and your decision to help there. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, because it's so isolated, it's also one of the most undervalued ecosystems on the planet. So, yeah. like we were mentioning, there's a lot of organizations that don't go there mm-hmm. that don't really um, you know, or that we at least we don't hear about. Uh why do you why do you think that is? Why do you think it's it's so, uh, you know, almost underappreciated?
1: I I think that a lot of that is I think a lot of that is, is tropical forests. Generally, um, they're certainly with it. It's, it's hard to say, cause in, in my lifetime, you know, I've kind of grown up in a, in sort of an awakening consciousness of, of the value of these things, um, where, you know, save the rainforest is something I've been hearing since I was a little kid. So right. it's started, it started to be appreciated, but for a very long time, um, I think rainforests, for anybody who's been in one, um, if you haven't been in a rainforest, I think it's easy to view them in sort of a romantic, you know, kind of fern gully kind of way, <laughs> where <laughs> it's just this magical place where there's flowers everywhere and everybody gets along. Uh, the practical upshot of a rainforest is it is really a difficult ecosystem for humans to be in. Um, so if you live near it, uh, it is... I think when you see a rainforest actually, you know, intact and extant, it seems massive and inexhaustible and impenetrable yeah. and just totally invulnerable because it's just this wall of life. Yeah. It you, you it would take you, you know, I you can get lost immediately, you can get disoriented, there's just so many animals that, that you know, want some blood from you or just want to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean not in Madagascar, but in um, in rainforests generally. So I think yeah. that for anything that seems inexhaustible, people don't tend to value. And then in a lot of continental areas, it's it's there's always more to go to, and there's always more, you know, to conquer. And I think that it's just being on an island, Madagascar's Madagascar's forest in particular. If you just look at it in terms of a raw numbers perspective, mm-hmm. so number of species is is not as high as you would find in some of these places like uh, Manu in Peru and Peru and some of these other iconic rainforests um, but that's largely because it's on an island but as you said there there almost everything that's there is completely unique to Madagascar right um, and I think that the the mentality and the tradition of uh, trying to conquer this thing that seems so imposing, and is such an unnatural ecosystem for for a lot of humans and just seems like this this dark monster um, if you live right next to it. I think that, that that mentality of sort of trying to tame it and turn it into something open and bright and sunny and something that's more comfortable for humans is is uh, kind of at the root of, of why for a long time uh, rainforest haven't, hasn't really been as valued as it could be. Um, and I think now in terms of conservation, as we talked about, um, people that would be interested in in doing their best to save it, I think sometimes just write it off as a lost cause. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: That's not totally fair, but, um, there's so many other, other places that desperately need help that it's kind of hard to narrow it down. And Madagascar has just become, it's, it's gained somewhat of an undeserved and somewhat of a deserved reputation as kind of a, a black hole and kind of a difficult place to work so hmm. i think that um even though conservationists know what's at stake it's 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 like well okay we've got this island of lemurs it's it's still facing all these challenges you know or we could invest in in working in you know sumatra and trying to trying to to battle palm oil and, and save tigers and rhinos and a lot of other big megafauna so
0: and you were, we were talking briefly before, but you mentioned that the, um, we're talking about the new president, uh, Raj I'm sure I'm mispronouncing mm-hmm. that as well. Um, uh, <laughs> but some people call, say, you know, he's an environmental disaster. Um, you know, but it might, it's not always that cut and dry, right? I mean, we were just chatting, Hey, he's trying to get people to plant, to plant 10 trees. You understand that people are, or that the, the trees are being lost at such a rapid rate. Um, mm-hmm. How does he play into this? How does he... Like, he was elected, you know, in January 2019. Mm -hmm. How does he play into this? How does he work? um, You know, does he complicate things for you guys? Or does he, you know, set a better path? Like, how does that work out?
1: Well, uh, he's certainly been called a lot of things. And a lot of them he's been called by his rivals, of course. But Good point. uh, (laughs) Rajaline is not... You know, he's certainly no environmental champion, but the interesting thing about Madagascar is that it's gotten so bad that it's impossible to ignore it now. So even from a political standpoint, it's it's not it's not something anyone can afford to to ignore. And I think in a lot of places in the world where, where environmental degradation hasn't gotten that bad yet to the point where people can't find water, they can't find um any land that can support any sort of crop, they they really don't have as uh, easy of a time believing that things are really, really bad environmentally and they need to change as they are in Madagascar where it's it's now become something where it's very difficult for a lot of people to, to make a living and survive or even have water to drink. So politically, I think, I think Andres is sort of I, I usually refer to it refer to him as on not because we're on first name basis, but <laughs> it's just easier to pronounce than his last name. Sorry. I'm doing that
0: too from now on.
1: Um, so Rajaline is uh, he has I didn't know this until actually I was just there in March, um, and he is yeah he's made a, a personal uh, sort of directive and kind of a call of duty on on the Malagas and saying that. Every Malagas should plant 10 trees a year to, to help turn things around. And then what he's done on a government level is um, a directive to replant 40,000 hectares of forest every single year, for at least for the foreseeable future of his terms. So while that may not have a lot of enforcement and a lot of teeth, so to speak, he's really it's, it's gotten to a point where it's no longer, you know, this hotbed political thing like it might be in the United States. If you if you suggested that we restore 40,000 acres of original habitat across the United States a year, you know, that, that kind of brands um, politicians and kind of, oh, well, they're, you know, they're trying to just, you know, remove all this land. Oh, they're trying to take it away from other uses. Right. And Madagascar, it's it's just to the point where it's like, no, this has to happen. If we want to continue living in Madagascar,
0: what um, what percentage of forests do they have? Like, at what rate are they uh, decreasing? Well, honestly, the decrease is slowing down.
1: Okay, which is not as positive as it sounds. Okay. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. Um, the the closest estimates that I've seen, I've seen, I've seen a lot of variation in estimates, but the one that we kind of operate out of is that about. Um, 95% of the forest that was all probably here um, when people arrived about 2,000 years ago is gone. So anywhere from 90 to 97% of the original forest is has been um, totally gone. And in fact, the Narivo was named actually for the beautiful forested hills that surrounded it when it was founded. Um, not anymore. <laughs> it's it's all wow. pretty out um you know red soil with you know grass and um some some eucalyptus some introduced um eucalyptus and pines that that can kind of get hold in that crappy soil but um almost all of it's gone so the reason that deforestation by acreage has slowed down is that almost all of the rainforest left is in a protected area and if it's not protected it's almost essentially gone
0: gotcha yeah that is um Kind of a double-edged sword.
1: It is. It's not, it's a, it's a great statistic if you want to, you know, feel good about it, but it's like, well, there's a reason that it's not. Yeah. Different. Yeah. And that's not, that's not to say that it's, they're not still losing forests and there's not still illegal logging even within protected areas. It's, it's, um, it's definitely still losing forests every year. Um, it's just the, the scale of it just can't be on the scale that it was because it's not there anymore.
0: Right. Yeah, they just can't. It's, it's unsustainable to keep going at that rate. Yeah. Um, so one of the biggest things um, that I really enjoyed when I spoke with Ben at first a while back was that the Phoenix Conservancy always makes sure to involve local people. And it's something I've heard repeated after, but Ben was the first one to really touch upon it and mention, hey, this is a pillar of our organization. We always include the community. Because we don't know everything, and we're not supposed to know everything. This, the people who live here and who have lived here for years and centuries, you know, in some cases, know a lot more than us about this area. Um, so we're going to go in. We're going to go in with, you know, a, a fair amount of humility, saying we we can help. We know how to, you know, connect some dots, but we don't know everything. Um, and I really love that. I really enjoyed that. Um, so, for this madagascar project how are you involving uh local people
1: well so we've uh done really from day one so when as soon as we got on the ground one of the most important meetings i had was with uh the elders of all the villages that live around the base of the mountain so these are people that that know the forest in a in a way that is just so fundamentally beyond what any scientist knows yeah, okay. They 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 have local names for, for animals and plants that we don't, don't even know as a scientific community that they exist, but, you know, they've grown up with these things, so they know they know stuff that, that nobody knows. And ultimately, if they really didn't see a value in keeping the forest there, it wouldn't be there anymore. And the the thing to, to remember about this is that ultimately it's not something that belongs to, to me. It doesn't belong to Phoenix. It doesn't belong to anybody except for the people that really depend on this forest. So this meeting was to just dis- to explain to the forest and, and sort of the guardians, the stewards of this forest, what we were thinking about doing, um, what we were planning. And you talked about humility, but that's, that's so huge. And especially in, in Madagascar that the general culture is... I actually didn't believe this until I was there, but there's on a spectrum from like really abrupt to like British polite
0: (laughs) Madagascar
1: is so far beyond British polite that it's it's there's like you have to be extremely delicately indirect so it's it's not an issue of just like hey what's up can we grow more forest it's much more of a here's what we're wishing to do with your permission if this is acceptable To you, and and, you know, it just—it's a very, very delicate process. But
0: I mean, they're even more polite than British people.
1: Well beyond (laughs) it.
0: So, if you had somebody,
1: actually, one of the guys that was down there that I met explained it as if you were trying to make a good impression on your significant other's parents, and they already don't like you. That's (laughs) like the level of politeness that's acceptable in Madagascar. I love it. Um, so humility is a huge part of that and and recognizing that this isn't where I'm from and I don't know this forest the way that they do. And ultimately I live in the United States. So in a very proximate sense, in terms of, do I get my water from this forest? No, of course not. Um, do I believe very strongly in preserving biodiversity and allowing it to, to stay on this, on this earth as it has as much of a right as people do? Yeah, absolutely. But it has to be done not from an external source, not some external, you know, enforcement from above. That's kind of the old model is buy up the forest and then lock everybody out and say, get out of here, you're, right. you're hurting gamers. Um, and that's, not, that's neither pragmatic nor realistic. And so including people from day one, and that's true of all our projects, our big criteria are that, we like restoring the rainforest is one thing so that's just a technical issue how do you actually do that the real trick is how do you do that in a way that benefits the people that depend on it at every single step and some of the benefits take 20 years to really realize for example the changes in the water cycle nutrients and so on they're not they're sort of abstract so with our madagascar project um uh, we talked already about uh, building fire breaks and, and sort of the, the nuts and bolts of how do you regrow a rainforest. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the key components about Madagascar is that the a lot of people live, and I say below the poverty line, but just for... for <laughs> the, the, the scale of it was staggering to me. Most of that country makes less than $100 a year. So oh. a couple of nights out, um, in the United States is an entire year's salary for your average malagas. And a lot of them make less than that. Wow. So it's, it's an astonishing kind of paradigm, Mm -hmm. but what that also means is that you can change without exaggeration, hundreds and hundreds of lives with what would be seen as a very small amount of money, um, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is making sure that in the immediate sense when we're planting these this rainforest, we're actually hiring a lot of people to as basically their job is replanting rainforests that ultimately benefits them. And they're they're getting we're we're enabled we're not really going in there and saying you need to do this because the world needs these rainforests. It's more of an exercise in we can we can we have access to resources that you that some of the villagers around the base of the mountain maybe not. And we're more allowing them to do what they already want to do, which is protect their forest and regrow it. Gotcha. Um, And so for the long term, what's going to sustain that is is the fact that there's several things that grow in Madagascar rainforest that are of extreme value. And one of them, strangely enough, is vanilla. So Madagascar vanilla has already got a reputation as being some of the best in the world. It's actually not even from there. Vanilla is from Central America and Mexico. Interesting. at least originally, but it's an orchid that has to climb trees and it has to live in rainforest. And that's just the climate that it likes as an orchid. And so it's one of these really awesome crops that it's not like coffee where it's like, you have to seek out shade grown coffee, but a lot of coffee does really good. If there's just no rainforest at all, um, orchids have to grow in a rainforest. Most of them, hmm. at least in Malik Madag- Madagascar and, these vanilla orchids definitely have to, and there's also this interesting spice called Votsperifer pepper, which is a black peppercorn. You can actually buy it on Amazon, and it's essentially incorruptible as a, a luxury item. There's there's no way for that spice to be grown except in Madagascar rainforest. There's it just cannot be done. Wow! It's native and endemic to Madagascar. So Votsperifer, if you want something really crazy to to spice up your kitchen it's it's a black peppercorn that has aromatics that the best way i can describe it is that it smells like the forest does
0: wow
1: which is which is weird but it smells like sort of wet earth and rain and Hmm. flowers and just it's crazy stuff but umami taste yeah, I don't, I, honestly, it's not that I've ever tasted in my entire life. It was such a, it's it's sort of burned into my, my memory banks now, and I, I smell it and I think of Madagascar, but um, it was a totally unique smell. So wow, there are these really, really valuable commodities that can grow in, in rainforest, and that's ultimately financially what kind of reinforces the system. So our, our long-term goal is, and what we're working towards sort of on a 20-year scale, is not only making sure that there's these short-term jobs to help, um, build trust and, and develop this relationship with people and and make sure that they realize that ultimately this is not, this is not for us. This is not so that we can own it and and take anything from them. And that actually, that was one of the most important messages I, I had to get across in these meetings was we are not here to take anything from you. We are not here to just, give something to you and walk away. We're here to allow you to build your own future. And um, in terms of working with local communities, the best thing that we can do is create um, a framework and an infrastructure that they can, they can run and give them the opportunity and the resources to do it um, by kind of creating an, an entire economy around the forest itself. Um, so the, the long-term plan involves using aspects from all over the world um, for example, beekeeping, for example, hmm. um, other spices like turmeric and cinnamon. Cinnamon is actually a, a tree, a pioneer rainforest tree that grows pretty well in regenerating secondary forests. So it's kind of ideal. Um, but growing oh, these... Really? Yeah, it's 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 actually it's one of these species that... Um, one of our prerequisites for all these pioneer species we've talked about is... Okay, great, it creates a forest climate. That's kind of the bare minimum. But... Mm-hmm. Does it have other value that people can use? And if so, it's it's a winner. It, all of our species that we're considering for using this, um, most of them are native to Madagascar, but they all have to have some sort of uh, secondary value that benefits the people that are doing this. So as the, progr- the, the, the project kind of progresses, our job is to, to create more and more opportunities so that they have this really versatile bag of economic tricks that all tie back to having the forest and being stewards. And so one of our, one of our last sort of key components is that we are working on, well, not working on, but we have it planned out already that uh, about, about three sort of tiers through this process, um, we will be founding a Malagasy NGO. So run by the Malagasy and starting to hand it off and, Making sure that to avoid any sort of any sort of corruption or, or problems with that, that it is built to have international oversight, but ultimately that it belongs to the Malagasy. It's run by the Malagasy, and it's it's their forest. It's their stewardship, and we um, become less and less of a part of it. So that through the future, it's it's not ours. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of a long rambling answer, but uh, that's kind of what we're doing there, and. and Ultimately, like I said, we we can't get to the forest very easily. I'm in Washington state. So the the commitment to get there not only financially but in terms of time is a really uncomfortably long flight yeah. <laughs> to get there. Um, whereas, you know, all these all of our friends that live around the base of the mountain, you know, they can get up into the forest any day they want. Mm-hmm. So successful conservation in our view definitely doesn't start with this strangers from on high and from a different weird place that know nothing about the forest sort of bulldozing in and saying you're going to do it this way but showing showing a better way and creating the opportunity for uh for the people that live there and know it best and and really sincerely do love it
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um to do what's best for not only themselves but for the forest
0: yeah i mean it's it's the definition of working together like, you know, both components are equally as important. You know, you guys yeah. had success in the past in, in uh, you know, you're both in your backyards and nationally throughout America. And um, you know, people live there and do care about the uh, ecosystem. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, both are crucial for each other to survive.
1: It's, it's sort of a recognition of what we can bring to the table versus what's there. Yeah. What's already there is wisdom, knowledge, and a whole bunch of people that care about it, but also need to eat and need to drink water and need to survive. And so what we can bring to it is not any of those things. There's no reason for us to pretend we know more than we do.
0: I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, Well, cool. So, you know, you guys are doing tons of work, tons of great work. How do people help you? How can people help both, uh, you know, the Phoenix Conservancy, but also in particular, the Madagascar project.
1: Yeah. Um, well, the good news is, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot. You can, you can change somebody's life and without exaggeration for $10. That's, I, I think that's, that's one of the most humbling realizations was that paying um, somebody, not everybody, but a lot of people in Madagascar, if they work for a day and they earn $10, that's essentially the equivalent of somebody that makes thirty thousand a year being handed three thousand dollars for a day of work. Yeah. <laughs> so, like on that yeah. scale, it's it's pretty amazing. So it doesn't take a lot, um, but uh, in terms of what what people out there and, and your viewers can do to get really directly involved and, and really make a difference that is hard to fully uh, fall, hard to fully I can't really exaggerate it. It's hard to encapsulate how much of a difference it makes. Um, we have a fundraiser going on right now uh, inspired by the mountains itself. So we, it's, it's a crystal jewelry fundraiser. So we've got handmade jewelry, um, a couple of different styles that we're, we're um, selling as part of this fundraiser and giving out as a thank you for donating. And you can find that on uh, our webpage, which is phoenixconservancy.org. There's a direct link to the fundraiser itself. And you can also find that uh, through our web pages, or not only our web page, but our Facebook and Instagram, and and every other, you know, presence we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's definitely the most useful thing, and the most helpful thing. Um, it it takes it takes very little, and so if people want to really get involved, that's the best way to do it for sure. And you can it goes it doesn't go to us. Um, so that, I don't know if that's something that been Ben hopefully made pretty clear is that this the funding doesn't go, not a cent of it goes to any of us. It goes directly into our projects. Yep. Um, so if you want to put it really into dramatic effect and get a lot of, a lot of mileage out of a donation, that's about the best way to do it. Um, in terms of us generally, and if you want to keep in touch with what we're doing down there and our other projects, um, you know, the standard stuff of finding us on Facebook, which is just Phoenix Conservancy and we're on Twitter and Instagram, Phoenix Conservancy. Um, and then signing up for our newsletter, which goes out I think once a month, um, that kind of kind of gives a, a pretty quick overview of what we're doing um, and has things are progressing. <clears throat> and then uh, one of the other great ways to support us that actually doesn't cost anything at all. If if not any if your users are probably already using this, but um, Amazon Smile, we actually get a pretty right, yeah. a pretty nice stream from that. Um, and all that takes is when you go shopping on Amazon.com, just go to smile.amazon.com. And it'll ask you to pick a charity, and if you pick us, it'll go straight to it.
0: And it costs no more. It's just yep. yeah, it's just All the built same into price, your flow.
1: Exactly the same price, just Amazon donates to whoever you choose. So pretty good deal. And I guess the last one, um, as I said, there's tons and tons of people doing really, really good work and, and spending their entire lives trying to turn things around in Madagascar. And one of the most direct things that you can do, especially if you're a foodie, is to specifically seek out votes, Parafaire pepper so yep. that's um, again incorruptible in terms of a resource it has to be grown in rainforest and Madagascar vanilla and buy it use it and make awesome food with spices that directly go to to keeping Madagascar's rainforest intact
0: I love it and at the same time making your food taste super unique Oh yeah
1: if you've never done anything with Madagascar vanilla it's it's insane
0: it's it's <laughs> so so potent and so good nice yeah i'll have to grab some uh yeah i'll have to grab some uh you know links from you (laughs) for sure yeah well chris i want to thank you so much for your time uh the work that the phoenix conservancy is doing uh both locally nationally and internationally is amazing um so i really appreciate the fact that you've taken some time in your busy schedule to talk to me and to talk about the madagascar project man it sounds really cool
1: Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate that. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and uh, we'll have to—we'll definitely keep you posted on how things are going. And it's gaining momentum, so things should be going very well, very fast. So.
0: Yeah, it sounds really exciting. So yeah, uh, we'll—we'll have to connect in the future about how things are—you know—how successful you've been.
1: Great. Well, thanks so much for having me,
0: Brian. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. You take it easy. Thanks for joining. If you like that episode, feel free to rate view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget yourboots.com where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.